I should introduce myself. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a professor of history and I've studied disasters for 20 years. I'm not a pandemic expert. I'm not a public health expert. I'm a researcher and a writer who's interested in the ways that history has shaped the disasters that we face around the world today. My idea for COVID calls is basically captured in the name. Whenever a disaster strikes, I have a habit of calling around. I call doctors and health experts, humanities and social science researchers like myself, planners and architects, emergency managers, elected officials, journalists, teachers and artists. This time with this pandemic, it seemed like if I was going to make my calls, I may as well see if anyone else was interested in jumping on and taking part. So, well, thank you for joining me. That introduction is what I said a year ago today in the first COVID calls episode, and it's still pretty accurate. Let me share with you some of my thoughts after a year of talking to people every weekday on this program. For me, there has been one very important change. I live in Daejeon, South Korea now with my family. We moved here in February of this year. We entered a country with strenuous infection controls and spent two weeks in quarantine. I was previously faculty of Drexel University, and I'm now a faculty member of the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, a change since last year. I have a bit of a comparative view now, but I'm only at the very start of trying to understand what this pandemic has meant here in South Korea, a nation that has by any measure managed this pandemic so entirely different from my birth country that it's hard to even know where to start that comparison. That will be a big theme of COVID calls exploration for me in the second year of this program. I have avoided COVID thus far personally, as far as I know. I was tested three times in the United States. Those were requirements for my Korean visa. And I've been tested twice since arriving in South Korea. Not everyone among my family, friends, or work colleagues has been so lucky. I'm so grateful that I haven't lost anyone among those groups to this cruel disease. And I try to spend some time every day, as so many others do, remembering those who've died. Many of those deaths were completely avoidable. That truth really hurts. I've been so humbled by the courage and also the anger of the many people I've talked to on COVID calls who've lost loved ones or who've survived COVID. And we'll hear from one of the family members later today, Kristen Urquiza. Their stories were important, are important, and must continue to be central to our pathway out of the pandemic and into a long period of reckoning after. Whatever after will mean for this disaster, these people need to play a big role in shaping that. I'm a staunch advocate for the moral authority of disaster survivors. On that first day of COVID calls, March 16th, 2020, CBS News reported 88 deaths total in the United States due to COVID-19 and 7,100 deaths globally. It was March 16, 2020, a year ago. Those numbers for the United States were probably too low, but the sense that something terrible was coming was pretty clear in that imbalance between the United States and the rest of the world. As of that day, the USA was not yet fully ensnared by the pandemic. New York City had only announced its first death from COVID-19 on March 1st. The World Health Organization had only declared a pandemic a few days before on March 11th. 
Most of us had left work and school, those who could leave and didn't fall into the essential worker classification. We'd been told we'd be back in a couple of weeks. As an extremely privileged disaster researcher, I had lots of things on my calendar for April and May 2020. I had summer research planned for Canada and Korea and Japan. I was planning to take students and my family to the Paralympics in Japan. None of that happened. What happened was we stayed home for months in a massive collective action that saved lives and then that unraveled in the United States. And then the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the protests and the economic crisis and on and on. And that only takes us to June. Today, I marked the one year anniversary of the COVID Calls project with enormous gratitude to the over 400 guests who've shared their time and expertise on this program. I've talked with intellectual heroes of mine like Lori Garrett, Ed Young, and Dan Barry. I've talked to members of Congress, essential workers, poets, and musicians. I've talked to disaster research gurus like Kathleen Tierney and Lee Clark, Jim Kendra, Tricia Wachtendorf, as well as grad students just starting out as disaster researchers. I talked to my dad and to my siblings. I talked to journalist Tara Haley, who went to my high school a bit after I graduated. And I also talked to the valedictorian of my class in Arlington, Texas, class of 91, Chris Strawn, who's now a physician in Dallas. I tried to keep some main themes in focus. History of disaster, history of public health and medicine, archiving, the process of making an archive in real time in this case, structures of racism and inequality, science and knowledge making, loss and memory. Along the way, disinformation and conspiracy theory emerged as a major theme of COVID calls, not something I would have predicted a year ago, as did localism, the power of incredibly local action, federalism, mutual aid, vaccination and bioethics, and the problem of compound disasters, which this pandemic certainly qualifies as. I kept doing these long after I thought I would have stopped. Initially, I expected to do 100 episodes because about every two to three months, this disaster evolves into some new thing, some new set of circumstances, and we aren't over by a mile. My initial goal was to get great disaster research into discussion. I'm just one person doing this work, but I wanted to try to do my part with that and to try to move that discussion along in the moment, not after the disaster, while it's unfolding. And that work certainly continues. I also wanted to provide a venue, and there are many such venues out there now, thankfully, where journalists and disaster researchers could find one another. Along the way, this project also became its own sort of archive, and it's an archive completely shaped for good or for ill by the themes that interest me and those who help me plan and pull off these broadcasts. Mostly, I hope it's to the good because I actually really only do the initial thinking and preparation. The real power of the archive is felt when my guests start speaking. Their words have, for me, given this year shape, depth, and empathy. I've received countless notes with suggestions, connections, and thanks, and those have really meant a lot. Thank you for that. So in the interest of continuing that work, I'll keep doing COVID calls a while longer. As always, your suggestions are very welcome. 
I know in the months to come, the focus will become in COVID calls much more global and comparative in nature. I'll also be passing the mic to some guest hosts. And crucially, the total archive of episodes will soon be made available on a website with video and audio, transcripts, and essays, art, and interpretation that I will ask from you, the researchers and other listeners who make up this community. And I'll be giving you more on each of those ideas in the weeks to come. Anyone who's listened to COVID calls knows I have some ideas that keep coming back. The fact that this isn't one disaster, it's a bundle of disasters that can in many ways be traced back to structures of racism and inequality of very long standing. These aren't mysteries or new findings by any means, even though they have too often been written out of the records of disaster history. Disaster is just as much about structures of forgetting as it is about preparation and response. The pandemic also reflects cultures of disinvestment around the world in the types of knowledge and infrastructure that could have saved a lot of lives over the past year. It was also a crisis at least in the United States, born out of utter incompetence, malevolence, and racism as part and parcel of the daily life of the Donald Trump administration. But I say all of that to you with a sort of academic confidence that irritates even me as I say it, because the reality is, even though I studied these things pretty continually, this past year has been totally confusing, unnerving, disorienting. I've had days where I felt normal, yes, we were online a lot, but I was working. My family was okay. There were so many stories of sacrifice and good deeds and mind-blowing science. But for every day like that, there was a day where there was some new terrible loss of life or a new detail of COVID's lingering pain or just the emptiness of missing my family. I've even missed boring routines from time to time. And I've heard from others on COVID calls who said the same. I've tried to make sense of it through the uses of historical analogy, that's what I'm trained in, that helps a bit. But the problem is context really matters. History doesn't repeat itself. Certain structural patterns are there, but so much of what's happened has defied prediction. And even if it was predicted, its actuality was different, stranger, scarier, and more devastating than I might have thought. In short, I'm a disaster researcher who, has, who was unprepared to live through a disaster like this, a slow one a global one. Ultimately, I've found these discussions, the space of asking questions and hearing from people living this pandemic, I've found that to be the reason to keep doing it. it. Created It created a time for my family to be together. My son, Gabriel, for example, is my production assistant, and guests know that Gabriel has to give the thumbs up before we start the program. I actually asked Gabriel for his thoughts about doing this project. Later, I hope to have him on a COVID calls episode. That'll come a little bit later. But let me tell you a little bit of what he said. I asked him to tell me his strongest memory of COVID calls. And he said it was reading the obituaries, probably, which was an innovation that uh, Lori Peake suggested early in the, in the project last year. He said the obituaries were often connected to what the discussion was about that day. And he found that interesting. I asked him about his favorite episodes, and he said, Kim Fortune, those were good episodes. I like the one with Marco. Uh, you should check that one out. That was Marco Leonhard uh, over the summer of 2020. That's, uh, he's a taiko drum teacher, musician, and creator. He said that was a good one. And he also liked the one with Monica Green, because it was about the plague, and Virginia Heffernan. 
I asked Gabriel if he had advice for young people. He said, young people can wear a mask. They can also encourage others, older people too, because sometimes people listen to kids. They can encourage other people to do safe stuff. Another memory from this year, my younger son would burst into the room when the discussion on COVID calls ended. And in fact, that's been a constant in COVID calls that as soon as the discussion ends in the broadcast, people's families who are working, of course, or playing, preparing a meal in the next room, they would often burst into the frame. That's been a really um, wonderful and sustaining part of COVID calls, one that doesn't usually make it into the recordings. It was a wonderful and familiar thing to look forward to as well. And it's been great to talk to my wife's parents, John and Susan, about COVID calls. Uh, they're really dedicated listeners and have really offered great feedback and support on the project over the year. Overall, I'm saying that I need to think about all of this a bit more. I know I'm not alone in that. There's truly something to the idea that disasters are extensions of worlds that already exist, but they make new spaces too. And the space of COVID calls has certainly been one, if I'm completely honest, that's been important to my mental health through the pandemic. I knew that every day in the afternoon, I was going to speak to somebody or a group of people who cared about what was happening, believed it was real, and wanted to help. And I say all of this with the privilege of time and security to even mark my confusion and my hopes out for you. In the end, I feel like in some ways, I really don't know the pandemic much better now than when I started doing these calls. Maybe that's what disaster teaches. It's not a thing to be known as some sort of totality. It's in shards. Pick one up, look it over, put it down, pick up another piece. Whatever metaphor I use doesn't quite capture it, but let me just say, for me at least, and I expect for many of you, the COVID disaster will be part of my life from here onward. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live at its new time, weekdays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Friday episodes will soon be moving to Korea time, and I'll keep you posted about those episodes. And you can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can always... Keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please do suggest yourself if you'd like to join me on COVID calls. As of today, March 16th, 2021, there are 2,665,874 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 536,622. In South Korea, where I'm coming uh, to you live from right now, the number is 1,678 deaths from COVID-19. In Philadelphia, where I have dear friends and former co-workers, the number is 3,234 lives lost. And in the state of Texas, where much of my family lives, 46,704 have died of this disease. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. Once again, just acknowledging Lori Peake's suggestion. Lori's the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her idea to somehow balance out those numbers with something more human. And so I've been reading obituaries uh, every day 
on COVID calls since. I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Elvia Ramirez dies at 17, youngest COVID-19 victim in North Dakota. This is written by Glenn Rifkin, appeared in the New York Times, October 31st, 2020. When she died of COVID-19 on October 6th, 2020, Elvia Ramirez was only 17 and had started her senior year at Partial High School on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in North Dakota. She had intended to marry her long-term boyfriend and had hopes of attending college. She had promised to take some of her younger siblings to Disneyland one day. Instead, she became the youngest person in the state to die of the virus, which has hit Native American populations particularly hard. According to her mother, Susan Three Irons, Elvia started to experience headaches in mid-September and stayed home from school. Her boyfriend had the same symptoms, so Miss Three Irons suggested that they go to a drive-through clinic in Partial. Both tested positive for COVID, and soon Elvia had a fever. Her boyfriend recovered. On September 22nd, when her daughter began to have difficulty breathing, Miss Three Irons called an ambulance. Elvia was taken to a hospital in nearby Minot, but the facility was ill-equipped to handle serious COVID cases. The hospital was so short-staffed that Ms. Three Irons had to take on much of her daughter's care herself, but the hospital eventually insisted that she could no longer be in the room. She called Elvia on the phone. I told her I loved her, Ms. Three Irons said in an interview, and she told me she was scared. As her daughter's condition worsened, Ms. Three Irons arranged to have Elvia airlifted to Sanford Children's Hospital in Fargo, 270 miles away. By the time Elvia arrived, her condition had deteriorated further and her breathing grew more labored. She was placed on a ventilator and never regained consciousness. Ms. Three Irons began to experience symptoms herself and tested positive for the virus. She was admitted to the COVID wing of another Fargo hospital. On October 6th, Elvia's nurse arranged a video call so that Ms. Three Irons could see her daughter. At some point during the call, the camera was turned down towards the floor, and because there was no audio, Ms. Three Irons didn't know that her daughter had gone into cardiac arrest and that the doctors were performing CPR to try to save her. After she died, the doctor held the phone to Elvia's ear so her mother, weeping, could say goodbye. Elvia Rose Ramirez was born on February 3, 2003 in Grand Forks, North Dakota, the third of nine children. Her family was part of the Mandan Hidatsa Arakara Nation. Her father, Elias Ramirez, grew up as a member of the Salk River Pima Maricopa Indian community in Phoenix. Elvia, who was extremely proud of her heritage, became a member of that tribe. She struggled with asthma and high blood pressure, but was a vivacious, active teenager who loved drawing anime characters and had dreams of becoming an artist and a cat mom. Always a curious, empathetic child, she helped raise her younger siblings, her mother said. She always thought of everybody else first, Miss Three Irons said. She was always there to cheer up her friends and volunteer to help out when people needed her. Okay, I'm going to turn now to my guests and let me introduce the first guest of today's 
anniversary episode, and she was my first guest on the first COVID calls. Dr. Gigi Gronball is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her area of expertise is immunology. Gigi, it's, it's really great to see you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Can you believe it's been a year? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, <laughs> even that long sort of preamble I gave in the middle of, of sort of talking, I thought how it's still surreal to be having these, these conversations. But um, I was glad you said yes the first time to talk and um, appreciated that conversation and have gone back to it frequently. And I'm glad you could join me for a few minutes today. Um, I, it's hard to ask people to summarize a year, but thinking back over it, just personally, what's that journey been like for you? Well, I mean, it's been very busy. So, I mean, at the Center for Health Security, it's been a, a, there's been a lot of work, and um, and I have uh, kids at home um, for virtual school. So, uh, so it's been you know a challenge to do all that plus. Uh, Learn how to become more media savvy and um, and do all the, and and still write you know academic papers and all that. So I realized that things were a challenge when I I thought well if I just get up at four or four thirty then that would be like self care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get remember, everything done. Yeah, when we talked last time, you were actually just starting to teach a class on yes. the history of the nineteen eighteen influenza, which yeah. seemed like. A crazy historical resonance. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to teach pandemic in the middle of an emerging pandemic. Yeah, so I taught um, a chemical and biological weapons class and uh, a history of 1918 flu um, for the last term of last year and getting to teach it again uh, next week. And um, and it's been, and I've been teaching I, all this whole time, actually, um, not in the summer, but uh, for the rest of the time. And you know, students are pretty stressed out, and they're um, far flung. So it's been it's been a little bit more um, of a challenge to try and make sure that all the students are are kind of staying in touch, even though we're all in virtual land. That they're you know that they're being kind of you know reached out to. And um, if assignments don't come in, sometimes it's because you know they they live in Houston and the and there's a you know a weather emergency or you know there are other things that have been going on that have made things really stressful for them. And so, what about your research? at this time. Can you tell me some of the work you've been doing? Sure. So I think the biggest things that we've um, that we've done in the last year have have been about testing. So um, as you recall, in the early days of we of uh, COVID, we didn't have um, a good handle on diagnostic testing. And everybody was um, wondering if they had had COVID before. So um, there was this premium on, on serology testing or antibody testing. And so um, there were, there, everybody wanted to know if they had antibodies. And, um, and so all these antibody test makers flooded the market and um, a lot of them were real, real junk. And so um, a lot of what we started to do was to compile all the tests that had FDA um, emergency use authorization. And then that became um, a list of tests and then it became bigger with fact sheets and um, and now we have um, uh, a pretty um, spiffy website called the COVID-19 Testing Toolkit that has all that information 
and we're having a webinar with a testing develop uh, testing services person uh, or services company, Ginkgo Bioworks, um, and that is doing the testing for Baltimore City's public schools. So, um, so it's become like a real big thing. All the work that we've done in testing. That issue with the testing, you know, thinking back to a year ago, with the sort of vantage point of time that you have now, what was the the hang up? And I, I know it's sort of a, probably a lot of different answers, but what are some of the lead things that you'd point to now to say why we didn't have tests, which led to this process you said of the market being flooded with junk in many cases? Yeah, I mean, the CDC held on uh, to control for a little bit too long, and and there were some mistakes that, I mean, could happen at any time, but they weren't quickly corrected. And I I don't know. I think I, um, you've you've said this before. I think a, a commission needs to look into what happened at different stages, all the way from uh, you know what happened in testing early on. But I I strongly suspect um, that it's going to be something like um, people didn't want to step out of their lanes to cross to do anything that uh, was going to require leadership, you know, because they didn't want to get um, in trouble for it. So I think this is where you have like the where leadership is really important to say, you know, don't cross that T, don't dot, dot that I, we're going to make, we're going to cut this, we're going to make it work, we're going to reach out to private companies, we're going to like whatever mm-hmm. it is that, you know, to stand up to the emergency. Um, but I think, you know, you're not, it's asking people who might get punished themselves individually. Um, it's, it's asking too much of them. So I think, I think it's going to end up being a big, you know, a lot of failure of leadership, but we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, I don't want this to be the future, but certainly there's going to be more outbreaks in the future. And, I wonder now how, what's your confidence level just on this testing issue. Do you think we would have a repeat of some of the problems and issues that, that we saw back in March and April of last year? Or do you think now that the learning curve has been has been met? I don't think it's going to. Um, I In fact, I think it's kind of shown the importance of testing. And mm-hmm. so I, I would expect that a lot of the companies that ended up occupying this space are going to, you know, stay there a while. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that um, they're going to go away. I think um, it's this the kind of testing that we're seeing of school children. It wouldn't surprise me if that were to expand to other things in the future or to other services in the future. Um, because, you know, um, flu is a big problem. Uh, this time, a few months, a year and a half ago, a lot of schools were having trouble staying open because, you know, so many kids were out for sick with flu. So um, I think I think it could end up being a, a bigger deal in the future if people kind of expect to have this kind of information at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the the gap between what they expect and what the testing situation in the early days um, of the pandemic delivered is pretty pretty big, and so I think that that's gonna that's gonna change. One of the strangest things of all of this has been also the sort of real time political experiment that we've all been living through. So we've seen sort of one approach to managing the disaster from Washington, and now we have a quite different approach. It's early days, but from where you're sitting, do you see much difference in how that management's playing out? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it was any more different, uh, it would we would be on another planet. So uh, it's very different. There's a lot of confidence. There's a clear and answer. There's, and there's there's no 
Um, there's a lot of competence and there's a lot of like getting things done, a lot of focus on results, a lot of wanting to actually manage the the problem and not the message. And I think it's really, um, it's really important. It's too bad that it's taken this long, but at least we are seeing some, you know, the, the vaccine distribution is going so much better every day than, than um, it would have if, uh, if we had had another administration, another, you know, second term of Trump. Tell me and, a little bit about, go ahead, keep going. I was just going to say the other big piece of, um, uh, of a lot of the work that we've done in the last year has been about uh, misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, I was, for some reason that was jogged into my memory um, and talking about the difference between this and that, uh, the previous administration. Mm-hmm. Um and there was just, uh, it's still, you know, it's it's so much worse now than it uh, it should have been, um, especially when it comes to the vaccines. Um, and, you know, then we see a lot of uh, white Republicans not wanting to get vaccinated. Um, they're, they're the most hesitant group of um, the, you know, when, in polls right now. But uh, we, we were, um, so just before the election, one of the things I'm most proud of that we did in the last year there's a there's a um, a Chinese uh, dissident um, named uh, well she's a, a biologist and she um, published this report called the after herself uh, the Yan report about um, how China was the origin of the virus and it was deliberately bioengineered and the report was kind of like sciencey. Um, you know, to somebody who's not a scientist, it kind of used a lot of the same words. But if you are a scientist, you read it and you're like, this isn't right. And mm-hmm. that's a weird leap of logic. And that's not the way you write in a scientific journal. And and so um, when we look into it a little further, it turns out that the report was funded by um, the Rule of Law Society, which included Steve Bannon yeah, yeah. and um, and this uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, dis- uh, defector, or not defector, but dissident uh, tycoon, the guy who had the yacht um, that Steve Bannon was arrested from, and right. and so uh, so it seemed very you know important to uh, to deal with this, and so we 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 did a point by point. Uh, rebuttal like of why this was not good science and even though um, her report you know got a lot more views than our rebuttal and she appeared on Tucker Carlson several times etc I think it helped for us to put in that work and and present it because um, the New York Times you know Wall Street Journal Washington Post like all you know mainstream media like Mm. cited our report and just said this is not it's not right like there was no both sides saying this it was just not right and and so i i feel um that it was good for us to to do that that was just in the weeks before the election I'm, i'm glad you did that work and i'm glad you raised that issue because it's been a theme that i wouldn't have predicted i mean i knew people were working on disinformation and conspiracy work and disaster research generally great research but I had never seen it move right to the center of the discussion the way it had here. Part of it has to do, I guess, with the lingering time frame and the election year, and there's many other things involved. But I guess my question to you was, I mean, is that going to change the way we think about training people who do the kind of work you do? I mean, ordinarily, you wouldn't say, hey, you're going to do this response. By the way, there's going to be some pseudoscience published 
um, by a Chinese tycoon and Steve Bannon will be involved. And you're actually going to have to work on that. You're going to have to take a lot of time and work on that. That would have been almost a preposterous thing to tell you two years ago, I think. Yeah, I think this has been a simmering conversation. What's the role of like the National Academies or people like Arsene, you know, that work in policy centers like ours or in science communication generally? Like, what is our responsibility when it comes to dealing with this misinformation or disinformation? There's so much that you can't um, spend, I mean, you could spend weeks on one uh, five minute video clip that goes viral, you know, and to, to say all the ways that it's wrong. But like, is there a need for like a rapid response network, a Snopes for science or something like that? Um, you know, scientists don't do these things without funding. So what is the, you know, what is the funding mechanism to be able to respond to um, to the garbage that's out there? And there's a lot of funding for that garbage. You know, some of the uh, terrible, like the pandemic videos and all of that. Um, it's it's you know it, it's one of the things that really came true from if you saw the uh, movie Contagion. Um, that whole aspect was really spot on. Well, uh, Gigi, thank you for joining me at the top of this one year uh, anniversary episode of COVID Calls, and uh, hope we get a chance to bring you back for a longer discussion uh, later this year. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you're doing. Okay. Stay healthy. Thanks. You too. Okay. I'm bringing in some uh, new guests now. Let me quickly introduce them. Uh, none of them is a stranger if you've been watching COVID calls. Dr. Esther Chernak is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health at Drexel University School of Public Health with a position also in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel, and also worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. Yonsel Kang is a, currently a visiting assistant professor at Drexel University's history department. She's interested in understanding the intersection of environment, science, and technology and disasters, especially in East Asia, and is working on a project titled Mineral Time, Bodily Time, Asbestos, Slow Disaster and Toxic Politics in South Korea. And Andy Revkin served as Strategic Advisor for Environmental and Science Journalism at the National Geographic Society. And through 2017, he was a senior reporter for climate change at ProPublica. He was a reporter for the New York Times from 1995 through 2009, and he created the Dot Earth environmental blog for the Times. That blog moved to the opinion page in 2010 and ran through 2016. And he's now the director of the new initiative at Columbia University, the Initiative on Communications and Sustainability at the Earth Institute of Columbia University. Esther, Andy, Yansel, uh, it's great to see you all again and, and all together as a group. How are you all? Yansel, you first. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I'm doing okay, and thanks for having me and us here. And uh, congratulations to you. I mean, what a, what a bittersweet moment today. <laughs> yeah, definitely a bittersweet moment for sure. I, as I said at the top, I really was thinking of doing these until about July or August of last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, then everything took a turn, and it seemed like it was a different disaster. Mm -hmm. um, Esther, how are you doing? Good to see you today. Likewise, I'm well. It's just like old times. <laughs> Things are good. I, They're busy. How many, how many times did you come on COVID calls last year? You were really my go-to expert 
for public health. And I usually gave you about 10 minutes warning before I wanted you to come on you. And you said yes, every single time. Thank you for saying that. I actually have, I'm not keeping count a handful of times. It's always been a pleasure. <laughs> Andy, what's new yeah. with you? How's it going? I mean, you also have really been doing a marathon of broadcasts with your Sustain What podcast, which you have Usually I have one or two guests. You will often have six or eight guests coming on over a period of time. I don't know how you stage manage all of that. It's really impressive. Um, well, as you know, we both, I, my thing started March 12th, but really March uh, 17th. So tomorrow would be my one year anniversary. And uh, you know, anytime I think I'm working too hard, I look around me and see people like you working twice as hard and I go, oh my God, how does this happen? Uh, not to mention uh, G uh, Gigi and uh, so many people who were just dug in on so many aspects of the pandemic. Uh, I'm doing okay. You know, I still feel like there's so much ahead of us. My sessions the last few weeks have moved toward uh, focus on the pandemic in countries that have not seen one dose of vaccine yet, for example. <laughs> you know, there's several billion people in the world. Uh, so it's, you know, anytime I feel this is over, it's, all, it's really, as you said earlier, it's a new chapter. And, and to me, this all fits this pattern I've been reporting on for decades. It's which led me into your bodies of science, you know, social science, behavioral science, uh, as a journalist covering things like climate change. And the pattern is blah, 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 bang. There was a reader of my blog 2008 mm -hmm. in Germany who posted that phrase, are we stuck with blah, 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 bang. And, you know, Laurie Garrett, who was on your show, journalists, scientists have been warning about this for so long. And we just were right in the thick of it. The disinformation storm, I think, topped everyone's expectations of the worst case scenario. And that's been a big focus for me. Also, of course, you know, I was I was in love with the internet, you know, until about mm. 2013 in my blogging. And then I then as the darker possibilities emerged. So I kind of feel every day like I'm still looking forward. It's hard to look back right now. But I'm and glad it, to have the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And and to your point about the working hard, I think there were times, I know there were times last year where I'd be trying to pull together an episode and you know how it is to try to get experts to come on. Everybody's very busy. Although I have to say in general, almost everybody I've invited has said yes to, to come on. But um, my neighbor across the street is a, is a physician. Um, and particularly in those months, in the spring and summer of last year, I know he was working around the clock and he was quarantining at home. And so, you know, if there was any moment where I thought, oh, you know, today, well, I've got so much to do. I look across the street and I would either see him coming home or leaving sometime. And I, yeah. yeah, I'm going to shelve those concerns of mine. I mean, that is the commitment of essential workers and health professionals has been astounding uh, through this last year. I wanted to ask you, um, Andy, so you kind of got one foot in academia, but you're still a reporter. Um, what are some of the trends you've seen in the last year in science journalism? I've asked you this question before early on, and I'm sort of curious to get an update in, in what you think now. I'm happy with the amount of sort of coverage that we've seen thinking about this disaster as something more than just an event, but you have a, a better take on it than I do, I think. Oh, it, there's extraordinary quality out there. Uh, I do feel... Uh, unfortunately, that most of the best insightful journalism that gives you the layers of causality, the layers of uncertainty, is seen by a tiny mi minority of the readership of the planet, let alone the country. Uh, the division and how we receive information 
the utter compartmentalization by political affiliation makes me less hopeful when I see splendid work. The, the journalism trend that I saw that I loved, which is not restricted to journalism, was way back in January when uh, The Atlantic, when Rob Mayer and um, Alexis Madrigal and others, then quickly many others, formed the COVID-19 tracker. You know, they saw these data gaps and they began creating a place for people to go to fill the, the, the gaps. Same thing with Johns Hopkins University. With a, it was two people in the applied engineering department that night. They, they, they saw a tweet on the China signals and they created their tracker. Like they just launched it on their own and then it iterated and became a multi-billion view phenomenon. So that that focus within the information sphere on um, diving in and creating opportunity, th those are really powerful, but they're not storytelling. They're not conventional journalism. Mm -hmm. right? And what you do and what I've been trying to do is more about, it's more interrogatory, right? I mean, you're asking questions and I, I'm asking questions and I'm, but I'm not concluding with a story. Right. <laughs> because I know this story is bigger than anything I could write in a single discrete uh, article. I, I, it's really interesting you say that. I went back and looked at some early um, sort of scripts I had for COVID calls. And I was in each episode, I would have like a, a monologue kind of thing where I would make some conclusions about things that had happened the last day. And after two weeks, I gave that up entirely because I, yeah. I had nothing to conclude. And I decided that's not really what I wanted this for anyway. This should be a venue, actually, as you said, just for um, asking questions um, that could deepen the story and could surface um, what's often kind of hidden away, is more esoteric research that was absolutely useful in the moment. Um, social science is where I start because that's what I know, but it branched out pretty quickly. Esther, let me bring you in on that, you know, just to the kind of things that Andy was talking about, this data journalism that's come about. I mean, you're an expert, you're a public health expert, you know, usually those kinds of reports and those data tables are something that, that you would read and then try to translate to the to the public. What do you think about that process this year with all of those numbers flying around? Um, you know, it's fascinating to me. And so much of it's consumed via Twitter and social media. And, and you know, in, in, you know, in the, the best of it, it's interpreted by the, some of the smartest people around explaining it to everyone. You know, I mean, you have these really amazing scientists explaining, um, you know, immunology and uh, vaccinology to to a broad audience of professionals, but plenty of interested lay people. And it's phenomenal how quickly things are getting out. Preprints are getting uh, are tweeted and, you know, people are explaining why, you know, what still what questions still remain, but why this isn't potentially important. And it's remarkable how fast that's getting out. And um, you know, so, so in many ways, you know, we're seeing really amazing kinds of science and we're seeing rapid dissemination of that science. Um, and it's interesting that obviously these are, you know, there's figures and tables that are probably not normally consumed by the general public, but to a certain extent, people are explaining those things. Um, there's some confusion and distortion, I suspect, in how some of these data are being interpreted. Um, and, um but in, in many ways, I, I think there's an openness that's, that is remarkable about this. I mean, from my perspective, um, it's, it's phenomenal. I think a lot of I, 
a lot of people, my colleagues in the world of infectious diseases can't get over just how effective Twitter has been and how effective some social media channels have been to just disseminate information quickly. Um, but there's a double-edged sword to that, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, in terms of misinterpretation, rapid interpretation, people responding too quickly, not not thoughtfully enough. Um, but it's pretty. It's it's quite an interesting time, and you know, just to just to um, dovetail on some of the points made earlier, you know, I think the disinformation is remarkable and how quickly that's getting out. And, you know, perhaps it was the, you know, the conjunction with the election year, but it's so politicized. I mean, I think that's something that I I really didn't anticipate. And um, people are so invested in their, in their view of the world. Um, And it's, it's really, it's, it's astonishing actually um, how, 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 People are just digging in um, to certain notions um, around science. Um, One of the things I've noted there is the, um, the the pace, as you pointed out, and with with social media and re- different kind of reporting of the pandemic, and then also the preprints issue. You know, a lot of the science sort of coming out, um, you know, with some question about the viability of it, I think, in some cases. And Andy, you were, you were going to speak to that that point, even this idea there might be a warning label or a, a better way to mark some of this science as still uncertain. And I think that's important. What's interesting about that to me is that you called it a double-edged sword, Esther, the rush to try to do what people do, get into the moment and bring science to the case. But science is a is an exploration with uncertain outcomes. And I feel like the American public and other parts of the world have not been prepared for that, maybe, or that created a possibility for this disinformation as well. Because if an official says this, but maybe also this, and we're not sure, and we'll tell you more when we find out next week, that has been the space that the disinformation artists have driven the truck through, I've felt like. Andy, yeah. I don't want to... Go, go ahead, Esther. I'm putting up here on the screen here something that Andy's sharing. I was just saying there's there's very little patience for gray, for ambiguity or uncertainty, um, or waiting for clarity, and that's that is so tricky um, to navigate. Sorry, I look. I lost it there. Uh, you could close that screen. That I had uh, created. I started creating warning labels for tweets by pushing back when a new preprint was out. And I think the media can do more of this, where like it was basically single study syndrome or when single model syndrome was one of my uh, warning signs because that that intensity, and I'm sure it's the same in, in, in South Asia and in Korea, of wanting the new, new thing, the new answer, the new, and, and when the, there was all this uncertainty in the early days, particularly the media, what do they do? We jump on the new, new thing. And of course, sure. it's the most uncertain thing, but we don't we don't put the uncertainty in the first sentence. And most of our readers online are just reading the first sentence or the headline. And so even well-meaning institutions, not this is not active disinformation. It's people who are trying to do the right thing, but they're doing the wrong thing. So it's there's a lot of lessons that are hopefully being learned. I, and to that, Esther, I wanted to sort of bring back something else. I mean, one of the things we talked about a lot this year was um, some of your background in in working on HIV/AIDS from a public mm-hmm. health perspective, and that's a slow disaster that's played out over a long period of time. 
So I always appreciated your sort of attention to kind of the pace of things, you know, that this could be a, a long haul and your attention to the concern about kind of burnout in public health and um, frustration and, and, and pol politics and people think science and politics are somehow separate worlds. And I think HIV AIDS, as you've said, shows that that's not that's not true. I, I want to sort of just come back to you on that because the pace of this pandemic is is slow. It, it feels fast yes. day by day, but it's playing out over a pretty long period of time. So I'm, I'm curious how you're thinking about time right now. The pace is much faster than HIV. I mean, in terms of the, the, the way the, the pace of the disease is faster and the pace of the science is faster and the pace of the communication is faster enabled by channels that didn't exist in the early days of the HIV pandemic. You know, I think both pandemics, you know, in this country just shine a light on all of the flaws and weaknesses of our healthcare system and our public health system. Um, the politics is are worse in some respects here. I mean, although the politics were terrible with HIV, with respect to stigma, um, and and those are still those are legacy issues that I think are problems with with uh, with COVID as well. But in some ways, the COVID pandemic, it you know, it's it's not the pace of a of an earthquake or a tsunami, but it's much faster than the HIV pandemic in terms of how quickly people are infected, how many people are sick so quickly, the inundation, the rapid inundation of the healthcare system, bringing, bringing you know, our, all of our systems to crisis points. And the information cycle is much faster than it was in the early 90s. Let me bring Yancel in on this. Yancel, you've had uh, quite a quite a year. You've been a <laughs> great guest multiple times on COVID calls. We had an episode where we talked about quarantine, mm -hmm. and you shared your experience of, of quarantine uh, in South Korea. So a year of this pandemic, or a little bit longer since it was declared, what are your thoughts right now, particularly in that since you've experienced it both in South Korea and in the United States? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I started out experiencing uh, COVID-19 in the United States, and, uh, and uh, now I am in South Korea, and it uh, it feels like, it, uh, and, I, and I try to trace back when I first started thinking about COVID-19 uh, back in about a year ago. So I, I traced back my teaching materials, and I first day I talked about uh, COVID-19 in my in my class was February um, 4th. That was when I was teaching um, uh, China, Chinese history, environmental history. And then I started out with the uh, Wuhan uh, epi uh, outbreaks in Wuhan and then uh, asking, started asking questions about, uh, you know, uh, government intervention, how much is allowed. And if Philadelphia was the center of the epidemics, would the United States were able to entirely shut down the Philadelphia those, those sort of uh, questions I throw uh, out there in, in the classroom. And yes, um, this has been, 
weird year for me. And in, in Philadelphia, um, let me just, my earlier um, experience with the COVID-19 was that I was very conscious of myself in the early days of the pandemic because being an Asian uh, and my family was, my family sent a, a box of masks, uh, although uh, it was not, it was not a N, N95 because it was prohibited uh, from exporting, I mean, sending from Korea to other countries because the uh, resource was limited. I was sent uh, cloth masks and I was very conscious of wearing it uh, because around that time I was, uh, there was a lot of report, reports on, you know, violence is on Asians uh, as as these days do. Um, these days there are a lot as well, but uh, there were very uh, graphic images, uh, graphic videos out there um, doing physical verbal violence on the street by the strangers. So I was very conscious. That was my first time being conscious about my race because I've been, I was raised, I was born and raised in South Korea with millions of people looking like me. And then that was, um, that was first time being very conscious of being myself, uh, being Asian, and at the same time, that kind of uh, shaped my behavior on on, on wearing masks. Um, so, being in the United States, I was uh, very conscious of myself. Uh, I was pretty isolated um, at 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 my little apartment. Um, in the United, in, in Korea, we're more connected. I have family, friends here. Uh, we're more connected. I have more uh, togetherness here. Um, um, but at the same time, um, it feels like a lot of hidden struggles are not discussed. Uh, for example, there there should be uh, issues of immigrant workers. Uh, that needs to be more discussed. There should be uh, gender issues that needs to be more discussed. Um, there needs to be, you know, um, those who are uh, staying at care facilities, there those who are in prison, that needs to be more discussed. But it's, it feels like those things that, it, that are heavily discussed in the United States, United States uh, seems like getting less attention than, uh, you know, uh, so-called uh, K model of uh, uh, epidemic control. So that's my impression overall. Just to follow up quickly, two things. One, I'm sorry that you had those experiences of <laughs> the the racism and the discrimination that you felt in the United States. And you're not alone in that. I mean, even President Biden in his speech last week called out clearly <laughs> that that violence and that racism has to stop. But I'm thinking, you know, it's a year late. I mean, he didn't have the opportunity to do it as president last year, but um, thank you for sharing that. The other thing I thought is interesting just to follow up on a little bit, because the culture of success in South Korea, where I am now as well, is is pretty intense. I mean, you know, compared to other industrialized countries, you have to say, if you're measuring the death rate, it's been a success. But you, you're pointing to that there, there should be some deeper questions asked. How hard is that to ask those those questions? Um, I I don't think it's a matter of whether asking question is hard or not, but it's just in terms of quantity and in terms of access to the information, um, it's it feels like it's there are less 
people who are asking those questions. For example, mm. there were uh, I, I can't hear anything more about outbreaks in prisons. So a few about a month ago, there was a huge outbreak in uh, the largest uh, uh, correctional facilities, and there have been uh, cases, thousands of cases in one prisons. That's a lot, uh, you know. Um, so, but then we don't hear anymore about what's happening in that in that area by now. So it's 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 sort of uh, attention span is shorter uh, by the media. I, I would say, and also, uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking I'm going back to the issue with the media. Um, it's just uh, support on those top, those topics. Interest in those topics is generally lacking. Um, so I'm I'm also curious about uh, those uh, with disabilities, how they are handling with uh, COVID nineteen things like that. I'm curious about those, but it's a bit hard. Uh, to read about those topics in, in, in Korean language. One of the things that struck me, and Andy, I want to bring you in on this, because you mentioned vaccine, um, uneven vaccine distribution around the world. You know, the discourse around the vaccine as the great, you know, savior in the United States is pretty intense um, and fits sort of longstanding historical patterns of sort of resorting to technology as the way to get us out of a jam in the U.S. Um, of course, I have... I have limitations with language here in South Korea, but it's a different situation here because infection control has gone so well. Um, you haven't needed the the machine of the vaccine to save society. And so it's just a, the tenor of the conversation is so different. What are you tracking, Andy, in terms of this sort of vaccination discussions on a global scale? You mentioned that a little bit earlier. I think that's a theme we're going to be following in the next months. Uh, well, I did a show just a week ago with folks from the World Trade Organization, um, the World Bank, and a Columbia law professor on how are essentially you've got this these competing dynamics. Countries want to vaccinate their own people first, very naturally and normally. But the virus, the pandemic won't end without global vaccination. And how do you parse out? Uh, and as one person said, uh, oh, from the Third World Network, uh, a woman, um, Sarah Reed Smith, was making the point that the the hashtag is people's vaccine, that if you don't vaccinate the people with a capital P around the world, uh, it's everybody's problem still for, for years to come, including multi-trillions in uh, costs, uh, not to mention the human costs. But the, the stages of figuring that out are still early. They're, they're, they're writing working papers like you just heard about the the uh, viral vi virology working papers, but they're working papers. Economists are not scrambling to, and trade law experts are scrambling to see what can be done to make the COVAX initiative. That's that uh, the, uh, the, the WHO vaccine initiative real in a world with all these competing interests. And oh, and then, the, you know, vaccine diplomacy countries, when they send the vaccine abroad, it's to serve their geopolitical needs, not to serve pandemic public health needs. So it's it's kind of a mess. Yeah, that that um, vaccine politics issue is an important one because, again, in the heat of the moment, people might not take any issue with that. So, well, if it's there, it's there. Make it available. That's great. Um, but if that becomes an issue of uh, continuing patterns of dependency, um, we've seen how that's played out in the past, and that's. Um, ultimately probably pretty detrimental. Uh, Dr. Fauci, was I heard him interviewed last week and, and he brought this point up too. He said, look, 
in his own particular way. He, he said, um, you know, we're going to keep going through waves of this, but ultimately until everyone's vaccinated or, you know, this can come back on the United States. So it's not truly a United States issue. And he was also talking about even that scale, but also within the U.S. He said, you know, yeah. if you're seeing drop in cases in the Midwest, but they're having biker rally in Florida, we still have to pay attention to that. We still have to, and it's kind of almost a thinking, the kind of things we were talking about back in March and April of last year, when it wasn't sort of national community spread. It's a never ending sort of geography left lesson in this pandemic, I feel yeah. like. Well, Erwin Redliner, who was the head of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia until recently, said something really powerful in my show about that relates to where we are right now in this country. It's a critical juncture of because of these pockets of unvaccinated people and the variants emerging. Mm. And he said, you know, there's 65 million people in America who live in what are called HPSAs, HPSA. It's healthcare provider shortage areas where they can't go to the doctor, let alone get a shot. And that's 65 million people. And a lot of that's rural areas that are, you know, uh, Trumpish. And when you throw that all together with, you know, the possibilities of, uh, you know, Easter and all the other congregations will be doing going forward. Um, it still creates this in potential cycle of repetitiveness even here, let alone uh, internationally. Esther, uh, you and Yonsel have been teaching together. So you've been teaching disaster in the middle of disaster, just like Gigi Granval was. I wanted to ask you because you have uh, such an interesting perch, you know, I mean, you're looking at a public health school, medical school, connected deeply with humanists at Drexel and outside of Drexel. What are you noting right now in terms of how students are taking it? Not just sort of the problem of not being in class, but also what are you hearing from students in terms of what they want to know, how they want to mobilize what they've learned this year? I feel like we may be at an inflection point around pedagogy, but it seems a little murky to me still. I mean, the interesting thing for us, and I'm sure Yansel can speak to this, is how we are teaching a course where we're basically focusing on a disaster every week, a case study disaster, and everything comes back to COVID. And our lens is this is really through equity and disaster and, um, you know, this this notion of slow disasters. And there's no such thing as as a as a as a natural disaster kind of lens. And we've you know covered Katrina and uh, Fukushima and the Haiti earthquake and uh, train derailments with hazmat releases. Um, everything comes back to covid. And what's really interesting, I think, at least in the in the discussions I've had with students, is that we focused a lot on government response and how critical government preparedness and response and just government decision making is in terms of creating the conditions that can either make or break outcomes in a disaster. Um, and we spoke, we've actually talked a lot about communication and and teaching this course now has been really powerful because there are immediate examples and these issues are so real for everyone. They're not theoretical. We can point to what we saw on television last night or what we heard read in the news yesterday as, as either illustrating or, or, or feeding, you know, the problem that we think we're discussing. I don't know, Yansel, have you, have you had a similar experience? Yes, of course. I mean, I've been teaching disasters over, I've been teaching two courses now, two, three courses, two, three related courses under the pandemic, 
uh, on disaster. And my sense is that students know very well about what disaster can bring us, bring uh, change, bring the society, and they have very good sense of what's happening around uh, right now, and good, very good sense of inequality and social justice these days. And I almost think sometimes that we don't we don't have we have not mu- there's not much thing to teach to them because they are literally living through it. But what we can do is that uh, making connections with other disasters um, and giving them appropriate language. I think that's all we can do. And they have very good sense of what's happening out there. So um, that's one thing. And I uh, had a experiment, sort of experiment in teaching, uh, asking them to write uh, pandemic journals in in last year when when uh, uh, COVID-19 just began, Mar- starting from March to uh, May. And that's one experiment, and that's a uh, that's that was related with uh, a sort of teaching uh, history. Uh, hi- I mean, historical teaching that uh, ordinary people's record matters in history. Um, but what I learned is that uh, that was sort of a comforting moment for them as well to recall what happened throughout the week and writing something about it was a very psychologically comforting, but at the same time, it was comforting to me. I mean, for, for a teacher who, uh, as a as in a remote teaching mode, it is difficult to uh, communicate with the students, but asking them to write something about what they are going through, I learned a lot about what's happening to them. Uh, some students had to return back to uh, uh, their country. Um, uh, I mean, had a severe psychological issues, uh, difficulties. Uh, some of the uh, some students of immigrant families had extra burdens because uh, their 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 parents had were more anxious than they are. Uh, they have uh, lacking language. Uh, uh, so practically, immig- uh, kids from immigrant families had to deal with a lot, um, helping helping their parents uh, translating the what's yeah. going on to their uh, to their parents, things like that. So I learned a lot from them, uh, from those pandemic journals about what's what uh, what students are going through. So those of experimental teaching things were quite useful for me. And I guess teaching was the way I connect with the COVID-19 over the year, uh, because I wasn't really directly engaged with any work at, like Esther did or Andy did. I would say for medical students, it's actually been really challenging because Mm -hmm. they've been restricted from a lot of rotations. It's absolutely affected their clinical experience in ways that are negative. Uh, There are hospitals that have lost tons of money. It's been this is a crisis for med for medical schools in terms of the impact on clinical education. So different from 1918, where it's like throw the medical students in. This is like (laughs) right. We don't have enough protective equipment. This is so it's been it's been a challenge. You know, I interact with third year med students who feel cheated a little bit. This is their year for rotations and they've been really limited. They've been truncated for year, you know, for the first part of the pandemic that, you know, there wasn't clear what we would allow or should allow students to do. And at the same time, they really want to be hands on. You know, I would work in these, you know, testing sites last spring 
And um, all of the medical, a lot of the Medical Reserve Corps volunteers were med students who want to be out there doing things. And now they want to be out there vaccinating. So so I think we're still struggling, at least from medical, from a medical and clinical education perspective on, on what the right balance is in terms of engaging these future healthcare professional students and keeping them safe. And I think we're still struggling with that a little bit. Such a fascinating perspective because it, it means that it's sort of the, the pedagogical infrastructure is not quite built to deal with the uncertainty of the moment, but the will of the students to want to be out there and in it. I imagine many of them will have careers as physicians, public health researchers, um, disaster researchers. They'll look back at this moment and say, that's when I decided. But the structure to facilitate them to become expert in it wasn't wasn't there. Um, I want to close up. Andy, you're going to share some music. I just It would be important for me to note that Esther and Yansel, it's great to hear you talk about teaching together. You're both such master, just excellent teachers. And Yansel, you are also a great teacher historian because you assign, you make assignments that also then help make the historical record. Uh, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm stealing that. Um, uh, Andy, let me bring you in. You said you're going to play a little music. And then I have um, Felicia Henry and, and Kristen Arquiza uh, waiting in the wings to bring them out in a minute. Yeah, I I just did the share screen thing. So if you're uh, you're able, aid or you can share it. Um, one of the things that kept me sane through this year was how I early I started to do the Sunday sessions around music and the poetry and the arts because I'm a songwriter and musician on the side. And there was just this one moment um, during the racial disruption as well. Uh, I had couldn't choose between two great songs. Uh, Reggie Reggie Harris. Did one called "We Will Not Rest" with "Till the Till the Storm Is Over," a uh, great uh, black musician focused on uh, what was happening with race, and then uh, Tom Chapin, this really great folky, pulled out his auto harp. open, you are welcome here, and in the doors open, leave out all doubt and fear, we'll plant a seed together, and together watch it grow, and learn once more what we already know, lift up your voice, Rejoice in what we've found. Let every heart take refuge in the sound. Feel the walls around us tremble. We will surely bring them down. And find ourselves on common ground. Find ourselves on common ground. Just amazing. Wow, what a, what a, I love having music uh, interspersed in here. Thanks for sharing that, Andy. And, and just a promo on your Sustain What podcast, and people can find that. Um, you do them every day, right? No, no, no. Uh, not like you. <laughs> oh, I thought you it, did them. Monday, Most Wednesday, days. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. <laughs> and the music on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. People which, should definitely Which is, again, it's a, great, it it's a great rhythm. Mondays are sessions on thriving online. How do we communicate better? 
Wednesday and Friday are sort of policy and media, and then Sundays are kicking back, which is what we all have to do once in a while. Andy Revkin, Esther Shernak, Yansel Kang, I've learned a lot from you this year, and thanks for your generosity of time and for all you do, and get back to work. <laughs> Be well. Stay well. Well, thank you. Nice to Stay see you, healthy. Scott. Okay. Let me bring back uh, two more guests uh, who I've spoken with over last year in COVID calls, um, who I'm happy to call friends. Let me introduce them to you. Felicia Henry is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. Her research interests include race, ethnicity, gender, criminal justice and mass incarceration, social vulnerability and resilience in disasters and communities. She's a licensed social worker and Felicia received her Master of Social Work from the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow. Susan Urquiza is the co-founder and chief activist of Marked by COVID. Kristen's graduate of Yale University and UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she has a Master of Public Affairs. She's an environmental advocate at Mighty Earth, where she works to hold corporations accountable to their industrial agricultural practices that displace indigenous people from their lands and drive deforestation in places like the Amazon rainforest and beyond. Additionally, Kristen works closely with Liberation in a Generation, a group working to narrow the wealth gap between people of color and white families in the United States within a generation. Kristen Urquiza and Felicia Henry, hello to both of you and thanks for coming back on COVID Calls. Hello. Hey, let's go. Good to see you and be here. Yes, so, likewise. Uh, this segment, sort of finishing up this one year anniversary episode, I wanted to focus on discussions about the pandemic and justice. And um, you've both been really powerful voices uh, in that discussion this year. Felicia, let me bring you in first. Um, kind of an open-ended question, but, you know, uh, a year ago, as this pandemic was getting started, you know, you were already, I think, starting to write and think about, I mean, you've been working on social justice issues for a long time. From the vantage point of where you sit now, how do you see this, this last year? What's, what's, what's your journey been like? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, it's been an interesting one, both personally and professionally, right? So just like working through my own kind of personal um, process and understanding what was happening around me, working through um, kind of the grief and loss and just sheer, um, you know, emotional toll that it's been taking on everyone. And then professionally, or, you know, in my research, looking at populations that even as we kept talking about COVID and started talking about its impact, populations that we still kept leaving out of the conversation, which were people who were incarcerated and people just kind of generally under any kind of carceral control. And I think that, you know, throughout the last year, we have seen both calls and actual um, actions to decarcerate or to um, kind of shrink the population that's behind bars. But I think it also has come um, at a cost in terms of deciding what populations are worthy to be released, right? Understanding like, um, can we make the distinction between violent offender and non-violent offender? Can we look at um, folks who have, you know, just a little bit more time on their sentence or whatever have you? And so I think that, you know, while we have made strides in some way to reduce the population or to not even have folks get in the front door at all, 
I still think that there are ways that um, we're failing to look at the impact of the carceral system on both folks that are directly and immediately involved and also the rest of us because um, it is such a daily kind of part of our lives. So really over the last year, I've just seen ways that, you know, we have responded or not responded, right? Because we still have folks that are incarcerated that are still, um, you know, at risk of, of contracting the virus or have and have not had um, really positive experiences. So for me in this last year it has just been looking at, okay, how do we respond as a, as a system? How does the carceral system respond to folks who are involved in a way that humanizes them? And I think that that's the thing that's still missing for me in terms of understanding that people are actually human beings regardless of the fact that they're incarcerated or not. I think that at a time where, you know, it's just kind of a widespread, you know, kind of all hell is breaking loose to really look at that and say that people deserve dignity and personhood. You know, I don't know if you heard Yonsel Kang in the previous segment, but she talked about that as a, an area that's for needed research in South Korea. I think what you're describing is not only a North American thing, but this is a sort of global comparative work that we really need to be doing. I think a lot of our discussions, myself, my own opinion, have been hemmed in by these sort of national discussions. Rightfully so, because so much of the disaster response is channeled through individual nations. But now as we move into this second year of, of the pandemic, I really hope we can move beyond those national boundaries a little bit. Felicia, I mean, how do you how do you think we could do that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's a matter of looking, just looking beyond us, right? Like I was just reading an article about how Norway, and I know that Norway is is usually esteemed as one of the examples of, of what a carceral system could look like. And, you know, they have their own weaknesses. Um, but just reading an article about Norway and how they've managed to uh, contain um, COVID in terms of folks actually both staff and, and folks that are incarcerated contracting it. And it was really just by taking some simple measures, right? Like really understanding like, wait a minute, we're not just going to let this thing kind of roam free because we believe that whatever, we don't care about you. We're going to actually, you know, hone in, hone down and get this thing together and really, you know, do testing, really do isolation, really do all of these kinds of things that are necessary, right? And I think, but at the same time, balancing, um, you know, the the reality that folks are going through this, and this is a lot, right? So when you're talking about cutting off visitation and all of those kind of things where folks can actually be able to, um, you know, talk with their family and meet with their family is really one of those components that help folks, um, you know, kind of withstand the incarcerated uh, incarceration experience. Um, but one of the things that really like hit me was the fact that they actually sat down with the folks that were incarcerated and talked with them about strategies and ways that they could actually contain the virus. And I think that in, in, in America, that's not something that we think about, right? That's not something right. that we usually do. Um, because we, we usually kind of take the stance that incarcerated people don't have anything to say, right? They don't have any kind of input that would be helpful for us when we're thinking about containing the virus or kind of anything writ large. And so I think that like it's a simple kind of thing of looking across the waters and saying, listen, what is Norway doing? What are you know, all of these facilities, carceral facilities around the world doing? How are they either um, faring well faring and really understand what are the mechanisms that are in place that are you know, helping them if they are doing well to actually do well. But I think it's a matter of understanding that we don't have all the answers, um, but also like t 
taking a step back to understand like we are the world's leader, right? And so I think that we're the world's leader and that is a clue into why um, we can't really like look to somewhere else because we are doing things and we are, um, we have a system that is really unlike anywhere else. But yeah, I think that it is really a matter of looking looking for, not necessarily just looking for answers, but understanding like there are ways to do this in a different way that we can learn from. Kristen, let me bring you into the conversation. Um, last year, I remember reading the obituary that you wrote of your father, Mark Anthony Arquiza, who died of COVID. And then there was some news reporting about that. And next thing I know, I turn on the Democratic National Convention and you're there. You built a movement last year. I, it must be impossible for you to summarize your year, but I did want to ask you that, that question. I mean, how do you account for this past year? I mean, it, what, a, what a remarkable journey. Yeah, that's a good way to point it. Um, I mean, it's been transformative. Um, it's also been the most difficult year of my life. Um, it's also not just only because of my own loss and how my dad died and how, you know, just utterly the, the whole idea of dignity. You know, people who pass from this disease have no dignity and we know who's shouldering it. Um it's also been transformative in the sense that, you know, my actions coming out of the passage of my father were driven by love and a sense for a need for justice. And through this work that I've done, I've connected and developed deep bonds and relationships with people I would have never met and folks who see the world and the possibilities in the world through a similar lens as myself. And that has you know, really filled my pool of hope, um, but also sort of given me resolve that, you know, this is such essential work, um, this COVID justice movement, um, to really seize this moment and, and, and move beyond the realization that the injustices in the system are in daylight for everyone to see, but to continue to push through advocacy in organizing um, and raising our voices that we can actually get to the other side and build a system that is actually more equitable and more just. Um, and I think that, you know, something, Felicia, that you just brought up this concept of, well, let's see what the people most impacted have to say. This really simple notion of respecting the infinite wisdom from the folks who are living the experience, that is something that's been central to what we're at, what I'm advocating for, what the group Marked by COVID is advocating for is to ensure that the lived experience of the people who've been shouldering this, that our needs are not only met, but centered in the ongoing response um, to this. So it's been a year of ups and downs and I'm in many ways still landing, but the thing that um, is keeping me going is, 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 
you know, leveraging this moment to try to make something positive come out of the untimely and preventable death of my dear dad. Just to stay with that, you know, the, the political context of, of last year was so dire. And Kristen, I mean, the, the testimonies that you gave about the death of your father, and I know you got a lot of criticism for that and a lot of attacks for that. And, and when people are vulnerable, you know, we tend to think, oh, well, everybody will rally around. That, that, I know you experienced that, but you experienced the opposite of that last year as well. Um, I know you probably don't want to linger on that too much, but um, I think it's important to, to note that this has not just been a moment where everybody said, oh, you know, these people died and let's honor them. It, it's been vicious in many yeah. ways. And I, I wasn't prepared for that. And I expect you weren't either. Not at all. I mean, the vitriol that exists, it, it takes your breath away. Um, and it really just kind of exposes, you know, where we are at as a nation in, in many ways. Um, you know, whatever your political beliefs, person just lost a loved one. Like, give them a beat, some respect. And, you know, I have, I have seen everything on social media and, you know, other channels of folks being incredibly... Um, cruel. And it's makes the environment very difficult to function in. Um, and, you know, for example, going into that DNC conversation, I knew that 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 would potentially put me or my mom or other folks in my family at risk. It was a scary thing to do, not because I was talking you know, to the world, but because I knew my safety would be compromised. But I knew that if I didn't do it, who would? Um, and so I decided to, to move forward. I, I can only speak for myself, but I would say, I'm really glad you did because I think you gave a lot of people a lot of courage. Uh, and I think you also made a difference among maybe even Republicans who were surprised at how this party of theirs became this vitriolic mess. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that was a, that was a constant sort of discourse in my own family, which, um, has a lot of, we're a, a, a family of diverse political views. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but your willingness and others who are in this marked by COVID movement to sort of stand up and say, well, let's just talk about decency mm -hmm. really struck a chord, not just with Democrats, cause that's the choir, mm -hmm. but I think with independents and Republicans as well, you've become a political actor in that regard, I think. Thank you. And that's, I mean, for me, it, you know, it, it'd be easy to try to pigeonhole me as a Democrat. I have actually never really identified with one or the other political party. It's been about what is going to be do right by working class people. And, um, you know, this issue of COVID has really impacted um just the people who are my community, the people that really are, you know, the, the essential frontline workers, the folks who didn't have the privilege to Netflix and chill during the shutdowns, the folks who were in the grocery stores or in the fields or in the pharmacies or the janitors. And, um, you know, there's just such a a love that I have for, I mean, my, my family, I come from a family of immigrants and working class folks. Um, that is what I believe makes this country great. And um, I don't, I didn't have any shame in, in sharing that and standing in that truth and saying what happened to them is 
completely contrary to um, what this country is about. And, you know, I, I guess I'll also say one thing that makes me really nervous looking ahead is this, um, this plea to or this momentum towards um, returning to normal. Normal is what got us here. And for people who've lost a loved one to COVID, there is no such thing as normal. But also, I don't want normal. I want to fix the things that got us here. I want to fix like what Felicia was talking about, the you know prison industrial complex that completely undermines the health of this, this cradle to prison pipeline. I want to make sure people aren't shouldered with you know, healthcare issues for the rest of their lives without healthcare. And I want to make sure that people have lost loved ones, that that is recognized and respected and, you know, ongoing memorialization, as well as restitution, because quite frankly, the government needs to pay for its mistakes. I was, um, again, picking up on some of that discourse as well. And I, I tweeted out over the weekend, uh, a couple of things related to this, the sentiments that you were just describing, the sort of closure to normal. And and I appreciate what President Biden has done so far, this discourse about getting everybody together at the backyard barbecue. And I know what he's trying to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm really distressed, really distressed about that idea. And I think a lot of other people are as well. And it's interesting, one of the, some of the reaction on Twitter, which is not a good measure of American thought, but it's one measure, was, hey, do you want us to feel bad the rest of our lives? And my thought was like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Like, can, you, can you make some time for that? Can you build in a little time every day to think about how radically unjust our society is? Would that disrupt you? You can still go to the barbecue, but maybe carve out five minutes to talk to people about living through the worst pandemic in American history, mm-hmm. almost by the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm, rant, I'm ranting now, but I just I'm inspired by what you're just what you're relating. Thank you. I mean, five minutes a day to thinking about injustice and then going about your day with that orientation, we would transform the world um, by transform planting those seeds. Um, and you know, I, likewise, I I get what he's doing, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate the shots in the arms, and I appreciate. Um, you know, a return to data-driven <laughs> responses and, and, and scientific institutions being upheld as, you know, what they are, a great institutions of, of truth and, and data. But also, you know, like we're not, we didn't all, we, we didn't have quite a shared experience. You know, we might have all been in the same storm, but we were on different boats, And I keep on thinking about how, you know, the boat that I was on, the folks that Felicia um, is chatting about as well, is like we were the boats that had holes in the boat to begin with. And we are doing our best to get that water out, but don't have any buckets versus the other boats that have huge buckets and motors and shade and water. Sure, there was a storm that that hit, but we have to fix those holes and figure out a way to make sure that everyone actually has equitable and equal access to resources in this country or else I just, it's just, it's just fake. It's just not real. Felicia, giving you a chance now to, to respond to anything Kristen said. 
Yeah, there's so much that she has said that I'm just like, I keep nodding <laughs> my head vigorously because I'm like, yeah, it's like yeah. All, all the way. And I, you know, one of the things that really sticks out to me is is this idea of returning back to normal and really the point that she just ended on because the reality is in this country and, you know, this is how uh, Scott and I actually got connected because last year I wrote this essay on um, COVID and um, what I called mass black death, which is the, the two pandemics really um, happening, right? So we understood that we were looking for COVID, but we understood that mass black death also was a disaster because at the same time we were seeing the killings of Black Americans over and over again. And we're seeing these protests and we're seeing, you know, these uprisings to demand justice at the same time. And then on the flip side, we see, you know, protests and riots in the street um, to open the economy because everyone wants to get back and do what they want to do. And this is like, you know, in May of last year. Um, and, you know, really one of the reasons why I wrote that essay was was exactly what is talking about is the fact that we cannot look at this moment and not take a historical perspective to contextualize what it is that is going on. We're not looking at you know 2020 or 2019 and saying, oh my gosh, things are so bad at this present moment, but they were so good before. That's incorrect. We're looking at history. We're looking at centuries long. We're looking at legacies, decades of injustice, of white supremacy, of oppression. We're looking at historical marginalization and being pushed to the side. We're looking at communities and, and, and uh, you know, uh, folks being divested from and all, like we're looking at really something that has been long in the making. And if we really want to go back really to the foundations of the United States, but we're talking about folks who are, who are black, who are brown, who are immigrants, who might be undocumented. We're talking about a lot of folks who have not had access to um, you know, all kinds of power, right, whether it's sociopolitical or whatever, have not had the opportunities to really mobilize and, and kind of get the American dream. And so why that is important is because, one, there is no normal to get back to in the sense of when we think about normal, we're talking about getting back to systems that continuously um, marginalize people, right? So, like, one, we have to talk about that. But two, if we're talking about, you know, this idea of recovery, we also need to recognize that we cannot have recovery, we cannot have just recovery, we cannot have folks, you know, really being able to build back or build better without acknowledging the systems that have harmed them in the first place. And I think that that's really critical because no plan, whether we vaccinate everyone or not, no plan will get us to um, a just society until we actually look back and say, hey, we've been doing this for centuries long and have been, um, you know, really marginalizing so many populations. How do we bring them in? And like Kristen said, not just bring them into, you know, the margins or, you know, put them at the table and just tell them to be quiet. Like, how do we actually center them and, and say, you know what? Like we're talking about all of these things, you know, in terms of who should get aid and who should do what. Why don't we ask the essential worker? Why don't we ask, you know, the supermarket, you know, clerk? Why don't we ask the home health aide? Why don't we ask the folks who never had a chance to stay home during the pandemic and have the luxury of working from home? Why don't we ask those folks who have not stopped going out to work since the pandemic started, you know what I mean? Or asking the family members, the loved ones of those individuals who may have passed on about what that experience is like. And so I think that, you know, for me, 
all of all of the things that Kristen was just saying were is, is really resonating for me. And I think, you know, it just continuously just comes up for me that like we're not talking about we have to just contextualize it really. That's what it is. Contextualize what it is that we're seeing and what it is that's going on for us to really understand what are the things that we need to put in place so that not just that we don't see another pandemic, but we don't see another disproportionate experience, right? Like folks are not having radically different experiences. Cause yeah, some people have holes in their boats and some people have no boats at all. They're like, you know, pulling down leaves <laughs> to, to float on, right? So we really have to understand kind of where folks are and understand, you know, why that matters for their experience. Uh, just a reminding folks that you're listening to COVID calls and this is the one year COVID calls anniversary. And I could not imagine two more powerful voices to bring together in one conversation than Kristen Urquiza and Felicia Henry. Um, and just, you know, something you've both said that, is, that I just want to underline is that, and you're both excellent at this, is the need to try to share whatever platform you may get at any individual moment, because to assume that voices of victims are going to be privileged in any disaster would be malpr historical malpractice. And to assume that it would happen in this moment, even with the front page of the New York Times, 100,000, however many hundreds of thousands, and still the voices of victims who died and, and those who have survived and those who are essential workers and um, the also racial injustice and economic precarity, those voices have still been pretty marginal. We see their names, but we don't hear their voices. I see photographs. I, I'm, I'm struck by the visual culture of this past year. Lots of photographs of suffering, mm -hmm. but relatively little voice of sufferers. That's something I just want to, and I put up a minute ago the link to Felicia's work that you can catch on medium.com. She's been writing a lot in this time. And also I had the privilege of co-authoring an article with Felicia. And it seems like 10 years ago now, doesn't it, Felicia? We wrote this piece about <laughs> yeah. big ideas for a just recovery in, in Philadelphia. And we were that was kind of a summertime vibe almost. Like we were talking about recovery at that, at that point. It felt very urgent to get those ideas out because I was we were already, you were already worried about this sort of normalization. Mm -hmm. And that the, also um the interests of real estate and finance and big business might drive a truck right through that moment to say, hey, you know, this is a good time. Those small businesses weren't that important, were they? You know, and that discourse is ongoing as well. I want to, we're going to wrap up here in a second and I'm going to um, turn to two more guests, but I want to, Kristen, just give you a chance to talk about, um, I mean, I love the fact that you, it didn't matter if Democrats won or Republicans won, although I imagine your advocacy would be a little different now if Donald Trump had been reelected. But um, you're holding the Biden administration's feet to the fire, too, and I really appreciate that. Can you talk a little bit about this coming year and the work you're going to be doing with Mark by COVID? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, I came to this out of the climate justice movement. So, you know, that's what my background is in. And I learned in 2008 that you can't necessarily trust a good person to follow through on their commitments. And, um, you know, President Obama didn't do what he needed to do on climate. And that, you know, sort of lesson has put us back decades on where we need to be on that issue. Um, so I'm not making that same mistake twice. <laughs> um, you know, President Biden has done great work to date 
what we're seeing now is what we needed a year ago. That's obviously not his fault, but he did inherit the office of the president and he now represents the federal government. So we are absolutely holding his and other people's feet to the fire. Um, what that means for us is that we are advancing our policy platform, which we have um, developed with our community of folks, uh, which is about restitution, recognition, resilience, uh, recovery, just recovery, as well as response. Uh, we're advocating for a national holiday for a commission to fully investigate the government's preparedness and response to the pandemic. So we know the unvarnished truth and that the history books reflect that. Um, we're also calling for the Biden administration to put people in their response team who have been incredibly impacted by COVID, uh, who have been living this experience day in and day out to get at that um, infinite wisdom that exists within these communities. Um, and finally, um, we are also working with our activists to continue to help them not only raise their voices, but speak to their politicians, whether it's on um, elected officials, their public servants, mayors or elected officials at the local level, state level, to bring their stories directly to the people whose decisions have impacted them. And that's on both sides of the aisle. Even if I know somebody is never going to believe with what we say, what we have to say, I will stand with a community member to ensure that their senator or other person hears what their inactions or what their downplaying of the virus resulted in. And I think that is an important part of the healing process for people who have been forced to sacrifice um, their loved ones. When we look at the trajectory of uh, September 11, maybe more relevant for our discussion here, Hurricane Katrina, that advocacy was crucial in that first year. Um, and I'm sure you know this, Kristen, but you're at the beginning of a process here. I know. You feel, you feel that, right? I do. I, um, I'm ready. I'm ready not to give up. Um, but I know it's going to be, you know, we are pushing a boulder uphill. But I have a strong belief in grassroots organizing. This, there is a, I mean, we called this marked by COVID for a reason. It's a place for folks to come who have been impacted by this virus and, and want to figure out what to do. Um, we work with folks in, you know, so many different spaces, whether it's public health, uh, justice reform, pub, um, environment, and many hands make light work. So <laughs> hopefully that continues. Let me just give the last word as we wrap this segment up to, to Felicia. Uh, again, um, thinking ahead, uh, you're a student somehow um, <laughs> in the midst of everything else. Um, so what's this next year look like for you? Yeah, so I am going to the comprehensive exam phase, dissertation proposal phase. But, you know, as I have been kind of working throughout this last year, I have really continued to orient myself to kind of doubling down on the population um, that I'm passionate about, and that's folks that are impacted by the carceral system. And I think that no matter where kind of my work takes me in whatever shape or form, 
that population is going to be central to it because I think that for too long, that population has kind of been just left out, you know, disregarded, dehumanized, like just totally the personhood for them has been taken away. And I think, you know, as Kristen was talking about the impact of COVID-19, you know, I just continue to think about folks who, you know, have not had the same kind of ability to grieve and really sit in that grief and heal from that grief because their loved one um, has been incarcerated, right? Like even the regular systems in terms of understanding like how people die and all of that kind of stuff. But like there is a disconnect and people just like folks couldn't be there in the hospitals. Folks can't, you know, go to the carceral facility and say, hey, you know, how how did things happen? So I just want to continue my work and and really understand and pull in the connection both structurally that we're seeing and understanding the impact of disasters on populations who in a lot of ways have already been harmed by other structures. And I think, yeah, it, it means, you know, taking folks to task and holding folks that are responsible to that and making sure that they follow through, not only on what they say, but also putting the bug in their ear to know what it is that they should be doing because of the populations that we represent. So that's what I'll be doing. Hopefully it all happens. <laughs> we'll see. But that's, that's what I'll be working on. But yes, I'm, I'm so grateful to be surrounded, um, to be on this call and be surrounded by, you know, such thought leaders, such passionate folks that are really pushing for um, justice in so many different realms. And that's what keeps me going. So. Well, I'm grateful to both of you for your time and for your work. And it won't surprise you to know that I'm going to invite you back um, <laughs> in this second year of the pandemic to hear more from you. Um, there's more to come with this pandemic. There's a long struggle ahead, as Kristen was talking about, in terms of just um, discussing memorial, making sure that victims are honored. And I think we can't be fooled by the idea that some sort of national coming together moment is is upon us. So activism is going to be absolutely necessary. Kristen Arquiza, Alicia Henry, thanks for all you do. And thanks for your time today on COVID Calls. Likewise. So, so good to see you, Scott. And nice to see you, Felicia. Yes, and likewise. Take care, everyone. Okay, stay healthy, both of you. Okay, so um, just a reminder to everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls, and this is the one-year anniversary episode of COVID Calls. We started March 16th, 2020, and as I did at the top, of this discussion today. I took a few moments to talk about what this past year has meant to me and my family and friends. And I wanted to sort of conclude today by bringing on uh, Shivani Patel and Lucky Stanton, who are the absolute um, just uh, crucial players in COVID calls. They work on this every single day with me. Um, and a lot of times I pass them half formed ideas or quarter formed ideas, and they turn those into, uh, invitations to guests who come on and say amazing things and teach us things. They're also the technical support because anybody who spent five, uh, minutes with me knows that I am not technologically sophisticated. So, um, they really make it happen. And I wanted to take a few minutes here just to talk with them about this past year and about what's coming up next year. And also just to offer them both uh, just a real sincere thanks for their dedication this year. Bucky 
Stanton and Shivani Patel. Hello. I should introduce you, actually. Give me one second um, here, and then I'll give you a chance to, to talk a little bit about your experience with COVID calls. Shivani Patel is a second-year student at Drexel University studying finance and economics. She's a production assistant at COVID Calls, which doesn't really capture everything she does. She connects with guests, and also she's a representative on Drexel's student government, which has been really crucial this year, working to voice the concerns of the student body to the administration. And Bucky Stanton is a PhD candidate in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He's working on a dissertation that looks at natural and cultural resource extraction in the central Peloponnese of Southwest Greece, exploring the history and politics of archaeology, energy, and modernity in contemporary Greece and beyond. Shivani and Bucky, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Scott, as always, for uh, everything you've done for me. Uh, the thank you goes right back to you for letting us be a part of this amazing project uh, and, and really being the only thing that I think kept my morale up for the last year, honestly. I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's been important not only to focus on the trauma of this last year and give voice to experts who can try to interpret it for us or talk about justice as Kristen and Felicia did in that last segment, um, but to also pause for a minute and talk about things that are created in this time. Um, and I think um, there have been a lot of friendships and a lot of projects created in this time. And I really value that uh, with both of you. I, Bucky, you and I go way back. Um, we've worked together as um, student and teacher and, and colleagues and co-authors and friends. Um, Shivani, I didn't know you before COVID-19. And you were a summer research fellow, um, thanks to the Pannoni Honors College of Drexel University. I have to give that shout out. And within about uh, 10 minutes of you joining the team, you were an indispensable part of it. What's, what was your year like, Shivani? Um, this past year, it really opened my perspective on just the pandemic in general, because, um, you know, most of my class time is spent learning about like you know, I'm a finance and econ major, so I don't really cover topics like these. Um, and when the pandemic first started, you know, the only, the only like knowledge I was getting is from listening to my family members and listening to, you know, everybody around me. But listening to all the great speakers who have been on COVID calls, I'm going to say um, really helped me with my critical reasoning um, and just fighting the misinformation and learning more about how much the pandemic has impacted um, different disciplines and stuff. Because, you know, like I said, in the start of the pandemic, I was just thinking about how is it impacting me? How is it impacting my family? When can I go back to school? When can I go back to classes and things like that? But then being like getting to listen to these conversations have really opened my mind. So I'll say that. Well, one of the things that you've done also, um, Shivani is co-host, and at the end of that summer, you actually put together a week of discussions about education, which yeah. was um, one of the best weeks we had on COVID calls with this wide variety of voices, and, and you even brought on some of your former teachers. Um, that was really uh, an important set of discussions, I think, because that was right when people were going back to school. And student voices were kind of missing in that a little bit. And you really surfaced those. I thought it was really great. 
Yeah, it was great um, being able to hear other students' perspectives as well. I think we should do another one um, since we're already, you know, midway through the year and we can hear about all those topics that we were talking about in the beginning and see how they've affected everybody. That's an yeah, excellent those idea. Episodes, yeah. Go ahead, Scott. No, I was just going to say that, that those episodes really were important for me because not being able to go on campus, uh, I feel so disconnected from the undergraduate experience as a graduate student. And I felt um, in the student disc uh, discords that I, you know, surf and the pages that I try and work with to try and stay connected with the undergrads at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, I just felt that there was no one described, there was no place, there was no channel, there was no content out there trying to give these people a, a place to, to grieve for a big loss. Like I, I feel like it's completely under discussed that like our culture puts a lot in college. It puts a lot in the experience of going to college and the experience of having a high school experience. that's a certain way. And that's already so tough already, but then weave that together with this year and what it's done to our communities and our friendships. And in those just such crucial times of your life, I, I was honestly taken aback with the optimism and energy that all your guests had. I mean, I edited the episode, so I, I felt like I got to know them a little bit, but uh, it, it really was a special set of calls, even for me who edits them every day. So just to let people know a little bit behind the curtain here, the way things work, um, I'll give you an example of the way it might work. I would um, be scanning the news and a theme might come up like weddings during COVID. Um, and so I'll take a link and I will email it to, um, I started out, I would email those to Bucky. Um, and then as the year went on, I sort of more and more email those to Shivani because Bucky is doing, well, I'll come to what Bucky does in a minute, but I send those to Shivani. And the next thing I know, there's sort of a flurry of emails I see sort of passing by as she's chasing down authors, academics, and then doing background research to help flesh out what those topics should look like. That would be a half-form idea. There have been less formed ideas where I might just send Shivani an email and say something like, we really should talk about vaccination, or we should really talk about airplanes. Um, and she would prepare a document, a backgrounder, um, and pull together reporting that's out there, research that's out there, and then that turns into invitations and then the, the logistics. So that as the year went on, my work in COVID calls became much more about familiarizing myself and writing a script and then actually doing the call where she was really behind the scenes and making it happen in terms of pulling the guests together. And then once the call is over, you know, I tweet out some reminders to it. But then I get a text message at some point from Bucky who says, um, what about the what about today's episode? What are you doing? Uh, he's always very polite about it. Um, but insistent and consistent. And then he takes the audio and turns it into an, an edited audio podcast, um, in part because we're trying to reach as many different media as we can, but also because we trust the audio record a little bit more than we trust, I think, the video record. Um, and we ultimately trust the transcript record most. And you both have worked on transcript of COVID calls. So that's kind of, for people who don't know, that's kind of what happens behind the scenes. And then, you know, my family is listening and Gabriel is helping. Um, my youngest son is also sort of playing and coming into the room when it's over. My in-laws, um, John and Susan are listening. I've got family members listening. So I always am sort of aware that there's this big team 
out there of people who are supporting. But I want to sort of come to a question because, um, Bucky, this is to you. You have edited every episode of this. This is number 240. It's a lot of hours with this. And I guess I wonder sort of kind of some of your headline takeaways, but also just what it's been like for you. Because not all of these discussions are so easy, frankly. <laughs> no. Um, and it's been hard. Well, I'll, I'll respond to the first part or the, the first thing I'll respond to is what it has been like editing them. And I think because of your conversational style, something that makes you made you a great mentor and a great scholar and a great like just person to know as an undergrad, uh, the ease of having a conversation with you, kind of this dialogue method you had in the classroom. I, I really see that happening here. You let uh, you let the people or the things speak, you comment, you reply. It's a, a give and take. And that compelling format has really made it quite easy to edit all these. Uh, it makes it predictable in the best way in which I can uh, kind of know where you're going, know what you're planning, know the arc of the episode, where to put a break and where to emphasize something. But also it's made it really deeply compelling. Uh, and in terms of like in terms of the labor. Uh, but I do want to add to that. I, it, I don't see it as labor. I do get, uh, you know, paid for this as if it's labor. And that's very generous. But I kind of reject it as labor. I want to refuse it as labor because it means so much to me uh, in terms of I, I'm a scholar and our entire field has spent the last two decades trying to you know, bicker about whether we should, you know, flip a policy switch or we should lead rebellions or what should we, we should do. And I'm just trying to write my dissertation and all this. And the thing that made me feel like I still was attached to something, like I still was doing something bigger, uh, which if you know me personally is not a kind of phrasing I would use a lot. Uh, um, that's kind of very vulnerable for me. I don't, I try and reject uh, fuzzy feelings and ideological platitudes, but this really was not labor for me because it was it was work, but it was it was work for something I really believed in. And to you know move to the second part, what are the headlines? I, it's, I mean it it every episode there's some consistent themes that come up that we can go through really fast. And the first one is, uh the accumulated injustice it is in every avenue of of life from every identity position even i mean obviously there's different types of privilege and different you know accumulations that matter but every guest has been hurt everyone has psychically suffered through this pandemic everybody has materially suffered even if it's just the denial of the things they were used to and the people who are suffering before are suffering even more so. And it is uh, this consistent story where we have been utterly failed by not only our institutions, uh, as in like the university, the government, all that, but by our culture and how we want to reduce and simplify every situation uh, so that it can be either profitable or fit easily into some scheme. And I, I just think that the main headline is pain. And I think that this as a place to explore that explores that 
honestly. And that's why when you ask for hopefulness, I mean, that's why you don't ask for optimism from your guests. They give it to you because you let them expose that pain that I just feel is not being said anywhere else. Thanks for all that. I mean, and just to take all that in and, and you're the person who has spent the most time with this as an archive so far. Um, you have a, you have a couple of months on Shivani. She's right there with you. Um, one thing I thought was interesting, both of you too. I mean, in, in that you have to, it's a lot of work, frankly, to get these through. And, um, you got to both, you got to where you could actually speed up the audio. So, uh, cause I'm from Texas and I talk a little bit more slowly and sometimes I tell a long story and I was, so I thought it was really quite hilarious when you both had shared independently that you kind of got to where you could speed me up in the audio and you knew where I was going to take breaks. I'm a little predictable in that, in that regard. Um, but I really value your facility with all of this and we're, we're colleagues. I mean, we're a team. Um, and this archive, as I've said before, is a kind of a funky archive. It represents kind of my take on what's happening and th that of the people who are in my network. Um, but it's, it's represented, I hope, your take as well, because I really relied on both of you for ideas um, and for connections to guests. And, um, you know, so thank you again for not only the labor part or the unlabor part, as Bucky said, but uh, the, the thought part too, and the complete lack of hesitation. I mean, I have asked you both, like, let's talk about, let's not be limiting ourselves at all about who we might invite. And so you've invited Dr. Fauci and, and you've invited the president of New Zealand and, and not everybody has said yes, but Shivani invited every member of the United States Congress. <laughs> and uh, we talked to a senator and we've talked to multiple members of the House and we have more to come. Many people have said yes through this and we've got more time coming up. And I think we're going to um, hopefully diversify the range of topics, become more global and watch out because I think we'll have some guest hosts as well. So you, you're going to have to learn the speech patterns of some different hosts, I think, coming up throughout this year. Shivani, I wanted to bring you back in um, and just ask you because you are, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, you're moving through your undergraduate years. Has this pandemic changed the way you view your future? Um, one of the things I've really thought about is you know, these pa this past year, one of the biggest thing on everybody's mind is the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic. And then I'm like, after these, vac you know, after, you know, there's not going to be a new normal or whatever, but like after everybody's vaccinated and COVID's not really going to be going, the impacts of COVID aren't really going to be going away. But then it's like, you're not full-time energy on worrying about the pandemic, then full-time wor energy worrying about you know, the climate crisis and stuff. So really, I've just been reflecting on, you know, how different issues are going to be impacting my world in the future. And one of the things I, I uh, restarted was, uh, I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think more about how I want to implement sustainability uh, into my future, like career, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I this past month I've been making uh, different videos about the hidden heroes in the world of sustainability. Um, so like 
I, I'm going to be going down to a water treatment facility. I went down to an organic farm, a small organic farm uh, near my near my house. Um, and then I'm going down to a recycling facility. Um, and I've just been doing this work for the past month because I, I, I've just been thinking about, you know, also the incorporating sustainability into what I want to do in the future. So that's kind of how the pandemic has been impacting my view on my future plans. I should also um, mention and thank you for sharing that, Shivani. Um, you're such a multi-talented uh, person. I can't wait to see. First of all, I can't wait to keep working with you, but I can't wait to see sort of what's going to come out of of this next year as and I agree with you, we're not moving back to normal, we're moving into something else. Um, but your ideas about um, sustainability, which you had as a, as a commitment before the pandemic, I think you've sharpened those ideas in, in our own discussions. You're, I think you're a real thought leader um, among Drexel students in that, in that regard, and I know you'll continue to do that. We have a new member of the team joining, and I should mention uh, Hyuna Kyum, who's a master's student at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy. And we just did a group introduction with her yesterday. And so the next time we have a sort of team visit, we'll have an additional member um, in here as well. And, and I think she'll make a great, a great addition. So let me um, give the last word uh, to you, Bucky. I think when I came up with the idea for COVID calls, you're the first person I texted and said, do you think this could work? And also, is there any technology out there where I could do this? And I know you probably went, oh God, Knowles, okay. And then you began to very patiently tell me my options and we, we've tried different things along the way. Um, you can't sum it all up, but I just wanna give you a, sort of a last chance to, to say anything you want to about this project. I, I think what's so essential about the project for me is, is your role. Um, in our world, there's a lot of scholars trying these these little podcasty things. There's a lot of people trying to do these mixed multimedia uh, approaches. There's a lot of people bullshitting. And I don't know anybody else who could do what you do and still be compelling. For, for just context... Um, I've edited two, the, uh, as of tonight, 240 episodes and nearly every one, what I'm struck by is this percentage I get on the transcript, the automatic transcript that we later refine. And it's that you speak for somewhere, usually your voice is 20 to 25% of the, of the call. And that's amazing because I don't want to, I'm sick of listening to people in our field, just talking to people or, uh, you know, not have, not combining their, their approach and the, you know, what we would call disaster STS, uh, with what they're talking about. Uh, and it doesn't so much as feel like a interview or anything like that. It feels like exactly what you described to me that first time, a call, you called me and we talked and it was a conversation and it wasn't some fancy platform. It wasn't some ego driven apparatus. It was genuinely trying to engage and explore with this emerging phenomena that, that I mean, wrecked my life for the last year, but also brought me a lot of amazing things like this call. I met my uh, wonderful partner around this time. I got into aquascaping. Uh, so there's been victories. Uh, and just one last note, I think if anything this year 
has uh, deeply radicalized me, but in a productive way. In a way that when Scott had met me, Shivani, I was an absolute rapscallion uh, when I was your age. I was not uh, as fit to serve as you in any way. Uh, and the the person you see today is much because of Scott's molding. Um, and that younger Bucky came out in the earlier part of the pandemic, for sure, being extremely, you know, almost toxically radical, wanting to destroy it all. But working through this podcast, it's really saved this situation as something that I can think about in a like a nuanced way, uh, something that I can engage with without just being so angry. It, it hurts. Um, and for that, I mean, it it is almost not enough to say that it saved my year. It feels like it saved my sanity. Uh, and so to Shivani and Scott, thank you so much for like just being on this journey with me. And I'm so excited. Uh, it's a bummer that COVID has continued and will continue. And we will be exploring these ramifications for the next several centuries. But uh, I feel lucky and deeply, deeply thankful just for being a part of something that to me actually has some meaning in a world that seems to have just lost all of it. Well, thank you for that, Bucky. Um, and thanks to both of you. And I hadn't, um, I'm glad to hear about the 25% host to guest uh, talking ratio. And I need to get that down a little bit, I think. Um, uh, because it's it this and I said this at the top and I'll close with this that um, you know I'm hoping this will this has been a day to day set of conversations because I want to sort of again sort of leverage all the knowledge that's out there um, uh, to try to cope with the pandemic but it's also a historical archive and as I said it's a quite particular one um, but it needs less knolls and more guests. And uh, that'll be a goal as we as we go into this next year and also I uh, think new hosts as well. So I just want to remind everyone that if you have ideas for future guests, future topics, um, or if you'd like to suggest yourself as a guest or as a guest host, um, know that your suggestions are welcome. And that when you make those suggestions, guess who I talk to about that? Uh, Bucky Stanton and Shivani Patel. So it's not just me that's building those. It's um, it's the team. Shivani and Bucky, um, here we go into the second year and stay with me on this and with our guests and thanks for all you do. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I live and die for the calls and I always will. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls every weekday at new time, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and moving towards uh, Fridays on Korea time and that will become more consistent as we go forward uh, into next month and just want everyone to um, stay healthy know that you can access all of the 240 episodes up to this one of COVID calls on any podcast platform also on youtube where you can catch all of the archive videos and on periscope where you can catch most of the archive videos stay healthy everybody we will see you tomorrow 5 30 p.m